Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 86, Writing as American Football. This is actually how I learned writing as an undergrad. And I'd like to give a special shout out to Talal Hattar. He's a really close friend of mine. He was my first English teacher way back in the day at the University of Washington. And writing as American football really teaches how to effectively respond to a prompt or a question set on a test or to a paper assignment. So the idea is you've gotten a prompt for a term paper, write about this topic, or for an essay question on an exam, explain this thing that you learned about in class, whatever it is. You don't get to choose your topic, it's handed to you, and you're expected to write about it. So what do you do in order to answer the question effectively, given the space and time constraints you have? So those space and time constraints might be, I have, you know, 80 minutes to do this exam, or it might be, I have three weeks to write this paper and turn it in. But either way, you're dealing with a particular time frame and a particular amount of time, and that's all the time you get. The way we're going to present this is from the perspective of the quarterback who leads the offense in football. The first thing you have to do when you get that paper topic or when you get that test is you have to read through the questions. Similarly, a quarterback has to read the defense. They have to understand, here are the challenges that the defense throws at me, and here's how we're going to attack them. What can you do when you're facing a paper and you're not quite sure where to go? Well, in the papers I assign to my students, they have to take concepts from specific readings or from throughout the course. They have to explain these concepts and then apply them to a documentary, a movie, or whatever research they're working on. I also have my students make a case for one of their concepts being the best explanation or offering the best solution to the social problem and explaining why. So that means that if you're just looking at the question, say it's easy to get overwhelmed, the best thing to do is start breaking things down into smaller pieces. So what this means if you're a student rather than a quarterback is you want to first identify the concepts that you want to work with to respond to the question. So maybe these are concepts that resonated with you, that stuck with you. Maybe they are concepts that when you think about the movie you're supposed to write about or the reading you're supposed to write about, they just, they were apparent, they were obvious. And then the second step is to define those concepts. So if you're quoting or paraphrasing an author when you're writing about the concepts, so you want to make sure that you have written down the concepts in your own words. And when I tell my students that they need to define terms in their own words, I say, if your grandma couldn't read it and then pass a quiz on that concept, it's still too complicated. Make sure that it's in very clear, very simple language. This is not a place to show off your vocabulary. The next thing is you apply those concepts to the scene, or the reading, and you use those concepts to explain why those scenes or readings highlight those concepts. So in this scene in this movie, we're seeing the concept of 
discrimination against blacks. And here are the three things in this scene that tell us it's happening. There's this and there's this and there's this. Or in this reading, we see how the author experiences being a black man and how that changes how he interacts with people. In this part of the reading, it talks about interacting with a white woman. In this part of the reading, it talks about interacting with a black woman who has just seen him walking with a white woman. And I am specifically thinking of, of a reading that I have assigned to students since I was in grad school, and it's called My Secret Life as a Black Man. Yeah, his name is Anthony Walton. So if you were given this reading and you have to talk about discrimination against blacks, you might talk about where he talks about walking with a white female colleague and getting a dirty look from another black person because he's with a white person and he can't explain the context. And then he talks about how he has to change who he is depending on who he's with, how he can't talk the same with his parents as he can with his black colleagues or his white colleagues. All of those are different situations. Those might be parts of the reading that you say these illustrate this concept of the discrimination black folks have to face. And then you need to explain which one of these concepts is strongest and why. And this is where a lot of students will get tripped up because there's several ways of approaching that question. So part of breaking down the question set that you're looking at as a writing quarterback is saying, okay, should I approach this as the strongest concept helps explain the weaker concepts or the strongest concept is easier or more prevalent or in your face or the other concepts have big glaring flaws that need to be addressed and this one doesn't and that's why it's strongest. But you've got to define for yourself what do you mean by strongest in that case. Now, we have just walked you through how to do this if you were in Dr. Bloom's class because this is the kind of assignment that he gives you. But it's also a good way to approach a paper and impress your teacher because many of your teachers will not expect you to say, here are the things I'm talking about, here's what they are, the definitions, here's how they apply to this scene in the movie or this piece of the reading, here's why those scenes or why those readings highlight those concepts, and then I think this one is strongest and here's why. Just saying you think it's strongest isn't enough. You have to explain why. But once you explain why, you've got the ball in your hands and it's time to call the play. Now, you've broken down the defense, you know where you want to go with your paper we get to the most important part that you will write, your thesis statement. The thesis statement is your quarterback call. Quarterbacks have less than a minute between plays to read a defense, figure out what the next play should be, and communicate to all of their teammates what to do. They don't have enough time to go player by player and say, here's where you're running and here's who you're blocking on this play. What they do is they speak in code. They tell the offense exactly what the play is in a few key words. For example, 30 cotton, Z flex right, Z zoom, one, 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 on one. Now this makes no sense to people outside of the quarterback's teammates, but his other players know exactly what they need to do. As a writer, you are conveying a lot of information very quickly to your reader. You are telling your reader, here's where I'm going with this paper. Here's what you need to look for. Your thesis statement is telling the reader very quickly, clearly, and concisely what you will argue in your paper and how you will argue it. Something like, I will show how stratification, culture, and organization explain the outcome of Central Park Five and why social organization 
is the most important explanation out of these three. Or our group wanted to see what affects recidivism by surveying people who've gone to county jail, and we found this. Now, for those of you who are completely tripped up by all the sports analogies, as I often am, no offense to Nor. None taken. Here's for those of you who are not football players and are still struggling to figure out what we're talking about. Think of your thesis statement as a roadmap. All right. You're showing the reader here is where we're going to go and you're going to show them signposts. So we're going to end up here and here's how we'll get there. That's what you need to tell the reader at the beginning of the paper or the beginning of the answer. And the thinking with this is both to let the reader know what to expect so that they know, okay, first I'm going to see talking about stratification and then about culture and then about social organization, given the order that Denor just stated in that argument. And so they will expect to see stuff about stratification and then see stuff about culture and then finally see stuff about social organization. And then that last signpost you're planting is this is why social organization is the best or the most important or the strongest. So they'll expect to see a discussion of that. And that allows the reader to know what to expect. And it also helps you stay on track, especially if you're doing this as, say, an essay answer in, a, in an exam. Because if you get lost in your writing, then you can use that statement, your thesis, your intro, to keep yourself focused. A good thesis is clear, it's simple, and it's defensible. You should be able to make a case for any variable or factor that you chose to be your strongest explanation for what you saw in the reading or what you saw in the movie or whatever it is that you are explaining. But you have to make the case for it. You have to convince your reader. And most of the time, the person reading it is the professor. But when we get to our episode that we're going to do about how I teach writing for research papers specifically, I'm going to tell you the professor is not the audience. They're only the evaluator. So sometimes you may be told, write an answer that would convince nurses of this or convince social workers of this or convince police officers of this, then you need to remember you're trying to convince that audience, not just your professor. Now you've got to move the ball down the field. You are making your argument. Typically in football, the offense doesn't score in one play. There are a few exceptions. Likewise, it's probably pretty hard to say, I'm going to show something, and I just did. Typically, an offense moves the ball methodically down the field, advancing uh, yard by yard, and until they score a touchdown, with the notable exceptions of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns. Whatever listeners we have in Ohio will either hate us or realize we're right with that. So what we're trying to get you to see is you don't want to be the Bengals or the Browns of writing. You don't want to stumble and get tripped up in your own words. You want to move the ball smoothly. You want to keep making points showing, here's how I'm seeing stratification and here's how I'm seeing culture. The whole idea is that you are writing to make your point. So in your paper or in your essay answer, you need to show how each of the examples that you use relates to the specific question you're answering. I know a lot of students I do it myself, have a tendency to go off on tangents and lose track of what they're saying. Use the thesis to make sure that you stay on your argument, that you stay on top of it, that you stay within it. And the non-football analogy, remember we talked about your thesis is a map, make sure you follow the map. The first thing you're going to talk about 
is the first thing you mentioned in the thesis. The second thing is the second thing in the thesis. Keep it in the same order as the thesis and make sure that each of the signposts that you laid out in your thesis map is described and explained and applied. Now we get to your conclusion. That's you scoring your touchdown and the point after. Congrats. You are hopefully more effective at writing an essay than the Bengals or the Browns are at playing football. You've answered each of the specific questions laid out in your prompt. Um, please make sure you actually do that. Well, now what? Just as you have announcers recapping the scoring drive that the viewers just saw, you have to recap your paper for your reader. Tell the reader what you argued and how your examples from the movie led you to your conclusion. Your conclusion should be your mic drop moment. It's the last thing your reader is going to see. It's what your reader is going to remember. Another way to think of your paper is what's called the preacher's rule. Tell the people what you will tell them. That's your thesis. Tell them. It's your body. Tell them what you told them. That's your conclusion. Now, some things to remember. While your professor or your TA reads your paper for the grade, pretend that you are writing it for a broader audience. Pretend you're telling a committee of professors and students from different departments what you found when you did your research, or pretend that you are writing to some group that is going to be activist about this problem that you're talking about. I tell my students, pick a specific named group that you're going to talk about, like, say, Planned Parenthood, or um, you're going to talk to the Bar Association, or you're going to talk to your city council or your mayor, okay, a specific named group. And one of the best ways to pick that broader audience is to say, can they do something about this? Do they have the power to do something about this? And do they care? Because if they don't have both of those qualities, they're actually not a good audience. So if you're talking about, this is what I found when I did my research, and you need to do something about this problem that I found when I was doing my research, then you're going to want to address it to a group of people who can actually take that information and run with it and who will because they care about it. The second thing you need to remember is assume your reader is smart, but that they don't know your topic specifically. Pretend that you're writing a paper that your parents or a friend who doesn't take your class or a colleague who hasn't taken your class is going to read, but they don't know all the stuff that you've been learning about that class. They don't know, for example, if you're in a sociology class, they may not know what norms are. They may not know what mores and folkways are. So you have to act like the person reading it isn't going to have the specific knowledge they need to understand what you're talking about. So your job is to tell them about that. But don't assume they're stupid either. Assume they're smart, just uninformed. Writing can be a struggle sometimes. Maybe you hit writer's block, you get really frustrated. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Now we're going to tell you something that sounds a little weird, and that is embrace the struggle. And the reason we tell you to embrace the struggle is for this reason. If you were as good at writing or at playing sports or playing music or painting or at physics, if you were as good today as you are ever going to be at those things, what would be the point of tomorrow? The point is to learn, to grow, to progress. And the way we make progress and grow is you work through the struggle. Talk to your classmates, talk to your professors or your TAs for help. 
That help can be critiques. That help can be asking a bunch of different questions to try and get you thinking in different directions. It's to get you started and to give you a little push in different directions to see which direction works the best for you. And I just want to interject something here, too, about the struggle. We've talked about Josh Kaufman in at least one episode before this, but I just want to give a quick thumbnail again. He did research on rapid skill acquisition, which is basically what we're talking about, acquiring the skill of writing as playing football. And one of the things that he found in his research is that it takes about 20 hours to get you know, to get competent at something, not to be an expert. That's that 10,000 hours stuff. That's fine. But you don't have to be an expert on everything. You just need to be competent. But what he also found, and this is important for that leaning into the struggle part, is that the first six to eight hours, you will be in total confusion. Your brain will be going, I don't know what to do with any of this information that you're throwing at me. And that includes the skills that you're learning as approaching writing as football. It's going to take a little time to get competent at doing this. And so for those first six to eight hours of doing it and doing it in a focused, methodical way, it's going to feel like you're totally out in the deep end and you're getting tired and you don't have anything to grab, like you're drowning. Work through it. Float through it. Allow yourself to be confused. Allow yourself to realize that this is brand new. Of course, it's going to be something I'm not good at when I start. And allow yourself the freedom to be confused for a little while. Allow yourself those six to eight hours of total confusion because then suddenly it will click. It will make sense. And from that point on, you're going to be taking papers apart the way a quarterback takes a play apart like a pro. You're going to be able to do this without having to struggle anymore. But the first couple times, be aware, it may be a bit of a struggle. And that's normal. We want to normalize that for you. And use the resources that are available to you. Your classmates are resources, your instructors, your professors are resources, your writing center is a resource. A quarterback has his teammates and he has his coaching. You have resources. Allow yourself to be confused, but also get the help that you need to work through that confusion effectively. The way students can use this, this episode approach is writing in a very systemic, linear fashion. But that's not how writing works all the time. For me personally, sometimes I'll think of a really interesting quote from an interview and I want to write my thoughts on that. Or maybe I'm thinking I see some patterns in my research and I really want to just spell those out. I'm working on my body instead of my thesis first. No one says you have to write your paper in chronological order. As a grader, I read what's submitted. So I see the final papers that were turned in, but I don't know when each part was written. Sometimes it's easier to start with a body paragraph to get the creativity going. If that's your writing process, use it. I sometimes write part of my lit reviews or my methods when I'm stuck because one, those parts are super boring for me. I'd much rather talk about the stuff that interested me and what I found. But I also know that these are necessary parts in papers. And if I can't find the right words for those parts, why not go with the more boring part? And sometimes writing those boring parts can get me into enough of a writing rhythm. And that lets me continue with the more interesting parts of my paper or my chapter. And one of the things that I tell my students when they say, well, I don't know how to get started writing. I, I can I just get stuck on the introduction and I can't go any farther. I get stuck on the thesis and I can't go any farther. I tell them, okay, 
All you need to do is come up with the thesis. You do not need to write that first paragraph first. And at this point now, Denor and I are talking more about the papers that take several weeks to write. Of course, when you're doing an essay exam and you're doing it in the moment and you've only got that one 80-minute period, you know, this, you may need to write it in order, but also, you know, put, put together a structure, main point one, main point two, main point three, you know, off in the margin somewhere, and then write the paper based on those main points. But what I, I have my students develop their argument, but then I don't let them write an introduction until they finish the rest of the paper. And I tell them the intro is what you can't introduce something you haven't seen yet, right? You can't introduce a paper if you haven't read it yet. So what you need to do is write the paper first. And the paper is the body paragraphs and the conclusion. Then you can write the intro because then it's like, okay, I've read this paper and I know it. And now I can say, okay, here's how I'm going to introduce it. The thesis statement or the argument. Yeah, sure. That's something that you should have done, but writing that whole first introduction, let that wait until you've actually written and read the main body parts of your paper. And how do you write the main body parts of your paper? You say, okay, Point two seems interesting to me today. I'm going to read all my research that I have on point two, and then I'm going to write everything I can write about point two. And is it messy? Yes, of course it is. The first draft is always messy. And folks, also remember, when you're writing an essay in class, we do not expect the same level of polish as in, say, a final draft that you have had five weeks to write or three weeks to write. You've had more time to polish that and smooth off the rough edges. But... When you're doing an in-class essay, of course it's going to be rough. Teachers expect that, and teaching assistants learn to expect that very quickly when they realize, oh, these are all first drafts. Okay, The standard is a little bit different. Don't start with the intro if you're doing a longer paper that isn't part of an exam, because when you, when you do that, what you're doing is you're often creating writer's block, because you're like, well, I don't know how to introduce this. Well, of course you don't. You haven't seen the paper yet. So wait on the intro for the longer papers. And for an essay for an exam, make a little note out in the corner. I'm going to talk about this, then this, then this. And your intro should basically be your thesis statement and then move forward. You don't need to write a big, long introduction in an essay exam question, right? That's that's not an issue that you need there. Another way that that outline helps, in addition to you organizing your thoughts, if you run out of time on that essay test, but we see that outline, that lets us know your thought process. We might not be able to give full points, but we can certainly give partial points saying, okay, these are the points they would have hit if they had a little bit more time to finish this test. And so that lets us know, here's where you were going. What can you do when you do have writer's block? Well, one tip is to use your phone to record a conversation either with yourself or with other people about the paper. Ask as many questions as you can think of and try to answer them. Maybe a day or two after, whenever you can, listen to that recording and type down everything. Give yourself a transcript of you thinking through your paper. Even if you say, but this is 90% trash, that means that 10% is usable and that's words on a screen that you can work with. But this is also why starting on papers early helps if you're given an assignment that gives you a few weeks to get it through. It gives you the ability to deal with obstacles a lot more effectively rather than just trying to write a paper in one night or in one sitting. Now, another method to deal with writer's block is to write about why you have it. And for many of you, you may never have seen an old style water pump, you know, the kind that you pump and it pulls water out of the water table in the ground.
But one of the things about older pumps, and the newer pumps don't have this problem, but older pumps, like if you watch, oh, uh, for example, in the movie Stand By Me, the boys go to the junkyard and there's a pump in the middle of the junkyard. There's also a water bucket sitting next to it with water in it. That water is not for them to drink. That water is for them to pour into the pump to prime it so that it will pull the water up. Because if you don't prime these old pumps, no water comes. So think of breaking your rider's block as trying to prime your riding pump. What you need to do first is put some words in, even if they're words that have nothing to do with your paper. And so you might write, I hate this professor, and I hate this assignment, and I hate writing because writing bothers me, and it's stupid, and I'm not good at it. Well, guess what? You're writing, aren't you? If you type that all out, if you just type out the rant in your head about how much you hate this assignment, you're writing. And once you've got some words out, that can often break the block. And where you've now got the words flowing, the water is flowing, now you can start writing on the actual assignment. And before you turn it in, you can just throw out the rant. You can just backspace over the rant and get rid of it. Nobody has to know you wrote it but you. And even you can just say that was just priming the pump. That's not a big deal. Now, teachers, if you are assigning a term paper, have interim assignments. Have an assignment where they need to show you their sources. Have an assignment where they need to show you their ideas for their thesis so that everyone is responsible for coming up with some ideas. And if it's a group paper, this is a great way to minimize the free writer problem, too. If everybody has to contribute two sources for a group paper and you've got five people working on it, then the person who doesn't contribute two sources, they're not going to be able to lean on the others for their eight sources. They have to say, they have to be told, no, you need to go find two sources and we're waiting on you. So you're holding everybody up. I hold several successful student and writing workshops over a semester, and each workshop precedes the work they're going to do. So I give a workshop on, here's how to do an annotation for an annotated bibliography the way I expect you to do it. And then they do the annotated bibliography, and they've had practice doing an annotation. So they've got some confidence about, okay, this is what the teacher expects me to do. They expect me to do what I did in Writer's Workshop 2, which is where I practice doing an annotation. Okay, now I'm going to do that over and over again for each of my sources in the annotated bib. I do a uh, Writer's Workshop 3, deals with how to do a literature review how to find the shared ideas, find examples of all your shared ideas, create categories of those ideas, and then talk about the categories, giving examples, and how that works for a lit review. And then they actually do their lit review where they've practiced doing one paragraph, one body paragraph of it in their workshop. Denor dedicates two or three class meetings just to brainstorming sessions and writing tips in general. He has students bring in their ideas so that they can work as a group through those ideas together. And in a future episode, we'll talk in more detail about my method for teaching students how to write research papers. It's a different approach than Denor's, which we've given you today. But one thing that these brainstorming sessions I'm sure happens is, Denor, do you get a student who will say, well, I want to write about um, juvenile delinquency, but so does David over there. Aren't we going to write the same paper? Mm -hmm. And then we can get, you know, well, this is what John is going to write, but this is what David's going to write. Notice how different those are, even though they're both about juvenile delinquency. They're not talking about the same thing at all. John is talking about how gangs form, and David is talking about how juveniles are treated when they go into the system. Two totally different papers. And that often reassures the students, because a lot of students believe that if they're writing a paper that's in any way close, in any way, shape, or form to any other student, then they're going to be accused of cheating or plagiarism or you know looking in on their work and stealing it. And I and this is one good way, this brainstorming session, to reassure them to say, no, 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 no. Does David's topic sound anything like yours? Then you're fine. I'll sometimes have students using the same concepts for term papers, 
but they'll explain the scenes a little bit differently. And that shows me that even if you're given the same prompt and the same material to discuss, you're each interpreting it slightly differently. So there's not as much overlap as students may fear. And also I've said to students, like I had one, one set of students once in an in-person class say, okay, well, I want to write about these three concepts. And Jane said, she's going to write about the same three, you know, main points. I said, yeah, but did you notice that Jane put them in a different order than you? So she's going to emphasize different things than you're emphasizing, right? And also, Jane, who are you aiming your argument at? Well, I'm going to be talking to cops. Who are you talking to, Susan? Oh, social workers. Are they going to be the same paper? Not even close because you've got two different audiences. You don't need to worry about it being the same paper. The two of you might want to bounce ideas off of each other. Maybe if Susan finds something that works better for convincing police, she can go and talk to Jane. And if Jane finds something that works better to convince social workers, she can talk to Susan and say, hey, I've got this great source, but it's not going to work for me. Maybe it'll work for you. That's how research collaboration often works. But it's important to reassure the students in these workshops and do hold workshops, folks. Please hold brainstorming sessions, hold workshops, dedicate some class time to it because if you don't dedicate class time to the paper, the students are going to think it's really not that important to you. They need to see that you are actually putting an effort on your end too. But when you hold these workshops, let the students know that just because someone else is writing a paper that's similar to yours doesn't mean they're going to be identical. It doesn't mean you're going to get accused of plagiarism. The only time I've ever you know, brought students up on plagiarism is when they are word for word identical. And that happened, that can't happen except by magic. All right. The chance, the statistical chances of that, we need to get a statistician in here to calculate it, but I have the feeling that it's an extremely tiny number. And so we don't need to worry about that. So reassure your students too, and let them know during these brainstorming sessions, I know six or seven of you are probably going to talk about police abuse of black men. Those are going to be five, five or six or seven different, very useful papers. And none of them are going to be the same. So that's what we have for you in episode 86. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. Also, we would really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to join us next week for episode 87, when we'll discuss Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies, Questioner, Obliger, Rebel, and Upholder, and how knowing your tendency can actually help you improve your learning process. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.